climbed up the broken hearted, proclaimed freedom to the captives, and released from darkness from, the, from prison. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of thy God, to comfort all who mourn, and to provide for those who grieve as well. To bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called mighty oaks, a planting of the Lord display of splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Strangers will shepherd your flocks, foreigners will work your fields and vineyards. For you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations and in their riches you will boast. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion, and instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. And so you will inherit a double portion in your land, and everlasting joy will be yours. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations, and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them will acknowledge they are a people the Lord is blessed. I delight greatly in the Lord, and my soul rejoices in my God. He has clothed me with garments of salvation, and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head, love the priest, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. For as the soil makes the young plants come up, and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make, it, will make righteousness and praise spring up for all nations. Uh, we'll, we'll pray and uh, look at that in, in a moment. Uh, before I do, just say, um, uh, yeah, please do come on Wednesday if you can, if you're a member of the church. It's, it's an exciting time for both Grace Church and the Gate Church, and an important meeting. And we'd love it if you could join us uh, next Sunday morning um, to kind of, I don't know, send us off on our way. So um, if you haven't come over to see us before, we, we would love it if you were, if you're able to make it. Um, and because of that, um, it's kind of, I don't know, exciting, sad, I'll let you decide, but this is my last Sunday here with you. Um, so... Um, yeah, I want to say thank you very much. And I, I was talking with, um, with a guy from the Gate Church on Friday, actually, and he was just talking, where, uh, I guess coincidentally, like we weren't talking about us leaving really as a church, but he was talking kind of uh, with thanks and gratefulness and just talking really warmly about his time in Grace Church. He was someone who was probably only here for maybe a year or something. You know, it was, it was a short time relatively before we, we went off. And, uh, but yeah, at the Gate Church, we, we owe you guys uh, a debt of gratitude and thanks. And uh, We've kind of got a, a gospel heritage that we've inherited from you. And, uh, yeah, we're profoundly thankful for that. And uh, so thank you. Thanks for putting up with me for these last couple of years. And, uh, yeah, we, um, it'll be good to celebrate together this week. And uh, we've managed to kind of make that transition whilst keeping unified. It's a really good thing that we're going. And um, God has kind of, I don't know, uh, there's a guy who, um, Philip Moore, who runs Acts 29 Europe, talks about gospel goodbyes, which is where it's the difficult goodbyes to say because you're doing it for the sake of the gospel. But he says, in the context of what God's doing in the world, it's well worthwhile because we'll share eternity together. And uh, this feels like a gospel goodbye for us. But we're, we're thankful and, uh, yeah, we just invite you to kind of join with us this week to celebrate and enjoy that and uh, to pray into that together. Let, let me pray and, um, yeah, we'll have a look at Isaiah 61.
Lord, we, we thank you and praise you for your word. Just so thankful that as we come together and gather as, uh, as your people, as, as, as a family each Sunday, we, we come to be fed and, and come to your word to receive from it life. Um, so thankful that I don't have to come up with something new and creative and innovative each week or something current, but we can just return to the solid and stable foundation of life that is your word. Thank you for this, this chapter we've just read, which is uh, quite wonderful. And Lord, I just pray that we'd even just grasp a, a slice of, of, of what this has for us. I pray that you would feed our hearts, feed our minds, feed our souls, and um, transform us as your people by your word, we pray. Amen. Now, I, I remember um, two kind of distinct seasons of of life, many more than that, but let me tell you about two, two distinct seasons of my Christian life. Uh, one was for, for perhaps a couple of years, and during this time, uh, knowing God just came kind of alive to me in, in this new and fresh and wonderful way, and it was just kind of a season of, of growth, really, in, in, in my Christian life. I saw victory over sin in different areas of life. I, I had a kind of an excitement about the gospel and a joy in it, uh, more courage in, in my witness uh, to, to unbelievers. Um, was having new experiences and, and, and developed new disciplines, new spiritual disciplines during this time, um, developed new Christian friendships, which are incredibly meaningful, meaningful to me and, and continue to be so. Um, I guess kind of a sense, much this time, not all the time, but of kind of peace and hope and joy, growing in the knowledge and understanding of God, uh, growing in love for others. It was just a, a wonderful time. Um, obviously, it wasn't everything like that, but you know, the, the, Lots of things are great, and um, often people maybe have this kind of experience at some time. Often when you first become a Christian, we talk about it kind of being like a honeymoon experience where there's just, you see the world with new eyes, and, and things are just exciting and vibrant, and, 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 and yeah, just a great time, really. I can remember uh, another time, a few years after that. This was maybe a period of six to 12 months or so for me. It's actually during the time when I was at Grace Church, and it was a time where I was incredibly spiritually dry, complete opposite. Struggled with any kind of meaningful spiritual discipline through this time. Just felt like heavy work. Felt nothing spiritually. In fact, I can just remember this abiding feeling in that time, kind of, I don't feel like I love God at the moment. I kind of lost, lost that first love. That, that was quite disconcerting. Kind of struggles with sin, felt heavy and hard, and just jaded and stale. It felt like kind of, you know, spiritually flatlining or, or something like that for that period. I wonder if you can relate to any of, of those experiences. Uh, my experience is most of the time I've been somewhere between the two of those, and, and often life's a bit of a mix of both. There's so, so, some of those things going on. I think that's what the Christian life looks like. Those are maybe extremes. But I think when, when we have, which we do, those, those dry and difficult times, and sometimes they can be many months or maybe sometimes many years, we might start to think, I've just got the wrong end of the stick, or I've picked up the wrong stick altogether. I mean, I was asking, I was wondering, am I a Christian? And it's certainly tempting to think, at that stage, God is not at work in my life. God is not at work here. God seems absent. Sure, he's working when, the, you know, those years, those months where things are going great, and, and I can see, like, see things happening. Not now. Well, it's in Isaiah 61. Uh, this is where it ends up. If you look down at verse 11, it ends up in this place. God making righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. 
God making righteousness and praise spring up in his people before all nations. And you might think when it's kind of, that's what this chapter's heading to, where it's about. It's all about that first experience of kind of flying high and spiritual victory and all the rest. Actually, no, it's not. It speaks into that kind of mixed experience. It speaks into the heavy and the dark and the dry days uh, as well, perhaps more, which probably for, for many of us today is our current experience. Maybe that's where many of us are at just now. And Isaiah 61 reassures us that God is working in all of those seasons, in all of those times. Actually, perhaps particularly when we're disillusioned, when things are heavy and tough. Remember, we're with Israel towards the end of the book of Isaiah now. So we're with them, and they've returned from exile in Babylon now, back in the land. And so they come back with these high hopes of what this restored life is going to look like. But we've seen over the last few weeks how actually it's maybe not what they quite hoped. And, and, and perhaps just now they're very disappointed with the struggles, with the battles of sin and stuff that's come back. And so here in Isaiah 61, um, we, we see two things, and they're summarized in verse 1. First one is this. Um, uh, let me read verse 1 to you. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me, uh, yeah, he, to proclaim good news to the poor. Here's the two things. We see good news to the poor. And we see who it's from, the Lord's spirit-filled, anointed one. They're there in verse 1, and I think they carry through the chapter. So the first one, good news to the poor. The first thing we need to think about is, who are the poor when uh, this, this chapter says there's good news to the poor? And here it is, is a spiritual, if you like, rather than a material category. We've seen elsewhere, and we saw it two weeks ago in Isaiah 58, God is concerned for the materially poor, for the vulnerable, for the weak, for the, the needy. He is concerned for their plight and he upholds their cause. But here we are in Isaiah 61, and when it says poor, it's not referring to those people necessarily, although they're included. This is a, this is a description of the spiritual state of God's people. This is them post-exile back in the land, restored to land of promise, yet filled with foreigners all around them who have moved in in their time away. Yes, they've got their own land back, but they're still under Persian rules. So they're not really this kind of independent, self-governing nation. They're starting to rebuild the religious and the, the spiritual life of, 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 uh, of Israel. And yet we read in the Bible that it's nothing like it was before. It's a million miles away. So those who can remember just mourn at the state of things. And so they've got this mixed bag experience. Actually here in the first few verses, they're described as the poor, the brokenhearted, the captive, the imprisoned, the mourning, the despairing. And there's shame and disgrace all a bit messy. In one sense, I think this is just really frustrating. You're just thinking, come on, like, you're back and, and there's so much hope and, and potential for so much change here and it's just frustrating there's not change. And yet in the other sense, I think it's just profoundly reassuring for me. You know, thousands in our community feel like this. They feel poor. They feel broken. They feel mourning. They feel like they're captivated. They feel shame and they feel disgrace. And the thing is that they think that God, if he is real, would not be interested in them. They say, Our lives are my life's too messed up. Too much has gone wrong. If only you'd seen what I'd seen, experienced what I'd, I'd experienced, or done what I'd done, you'd know that God is just not interested in people like me. But Isaiah 61 says, no, God is interested in exactly these people with these problems. 
And so this is you. He is interested in you. Christianity isn't for those who have got it all together, who have got it all sorted, and they come to God. No, it's for the poor, for the brokenhearted, for those who are mourning and weak. And you know what? Actually, we need to see that we're all like this. We're all like this. You see, the heart of the problem, uh, if you like, the spiritual problem for God's people isn't so much the life situation and stuff that's going on around them. But no, it's, it's the problem in the heart. It's the problem is a lack of their righteousness. This final section of the book, 56 through to 66, is really a call to righteousness as the restored people of God. As they come back into land, it's a call to live as God would have them live. And so it starts off in, in, uh, in chapter 56, verse 1, with this call from God. Maintain justice and do what is right, for my salvation is close at hand, and my righteousness will soon be revealed. You see, this call to righteousness is because God himself, we see it in verse 8 of 61, is righteous and just. That is his character. And so his people who know him are to reflect the character of God. Righteousness is this idea of this kind of moral goodness that's lived out in life, consistent with God's will and who God is. But we've seen over the last couple of Sundays, chapters 58 and 59, just the same old sins and weaknesses and failings are coming back at these people. Let me just read some of what we've been looking at these last couple of weeks to you. Why have we fasted, the people say, and you have not seen it, talking to God? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarrelling and in strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot do as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen, only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord. And later the people say, For our offences are many in your sight, and our sins testify against us. Our offences are ever with us, and we acknowledge our iniquities, rebellion and treachery against the Lord, turning our backs on our gods, inciting revolt and oppression, uttering lies our hearts have conceived. So justice is driven back, and righteousness stands at a distance. Truth has stumbled in the streets, honesty cannot enter. Truth is nowhere to be found, and whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. This failure of the people of God to be righteous is a massive problem because it puts them at odds with the God who is righteous, who is perfect. You know, I think we're so tempted to think and, and continue to think that our biggest problems are material and social. So we think things like, and we sometimes catch ourselves, if I only had a better job or a different job, like life would just be so much better. Or um, if, if, if I had more money, then it would just that security, I'd just, my life would be secure and, and I'd be better. If, if I had more or better friends, then I'd just have a sense of well-being. Uh, if I had a bigger house or, or I had better health or more gadgets. We, we, we look around us for things to to kind of improve life and make our lot better. But, you know, it's often not the case that those things make much different, much difference at all to how we feel, our quality of life and our sense of well-being. And because that's because my biggest problem day by day isn't other people, isn't 
lack of things around me. It isn't my wife or my kids or my job or my lack of time. Those aren't my biggest and my real problems. My biggest problem is my lack of moral goodness, is, is my lack of godliness. That's where my problems come from. It's important we see this here because if we won't let the Bible diagnose what our problem is as people, what our, our problem continues to be, our human experience, then we'll never come to the solution that it offers here in Isaiah 61. This tells us here we are all poor. We're all brokenhearted. We're all captive. The extent to which we are all in darkness. Unless, unless you see, unless you feel this about yourself, you will never, ever grasp the gospel. You won't think this is good news. You'll think this is irrelevant news. Why would I need that? Why would I ever need that? But if, and to the extent we do feel our poverty and we feel our brokenness in our own soul, and this is a wonderful chapter for hearing this good news that the doctor prescribes, the solution, the remedy that he gives. That's because God does not leave his people in that place. We see in the beginning of the chapter, he's setting about binding up the brokenhearted. He's freeing captives. He's releasing those imprisoned in darkness. You know, God's righteousness is so great that he makes this everlasting covenant with his people. He commits himself to us and to our change. If you look down uh, quickly at verses 3 and verse 7, there's this one word that's repeated over and over. Simple word, but it's just a beautiful one. Instead. Instead, these amazing reverses going on. God's taking one thing from us and replacing it with the other. Let's, let's look at verse 3. To bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of despair. Down in 7, instead of your shame, you'll receive a double portion. Instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. These are like these kind of these amazing reversals of the good doctor of our souls. He takes our inner brokenness and restores it to wholeness. He comforts us in the morning of death as we know the one who defeats death. He frees us from captivity to the power of sin. He releases us from the darkness that imprisons and oppresses us. Gives us joy in affliction. Gives us confident praise where there would be and could well be despair for us. The shame of abuse is cleansed from our souls. The disgrace of the potential full consequences of our uh, failings so often averted. This is the kind of good news for the spiritually poor. This hallows, this incredible and wonderful good news from God. And at the heart of this good news, at the heart of it, if you like, the pinnacle of it is the unrighteous becoming the righteous. If you just look over the page at 709 at the bottom of chapter 60, verse 21, there's a promise from God that all of his people will be righteous. And, and the idea there is um, about a shoot being planted in the ground. And then just a few verses later in 61 verse 3, we get to the end of that and we read of his people being these mighty oaks of righteousness. It actually doesn't say of righteousness in this version. It did in the version I was preaching from this morning. But there at the end of verse 3, they will be called mighty oaks of righteousness is the idea, a planting of the Lord. 
And the idea is this, is these shoots that God has planted in the ground are, are now fully grown into these mighty and strong oaks of righteousness. People actually becoming and living out this kind of moral goodness, this integrity, this perfection of God. And you know what comes between that promise in, in t- the end of chapter 60 and, uh, and, and, and those oaks of righteousness in, in 61 verse 3? Whereas a whole lot of brokenness, a whole lot of pain, a whole lot of mourning and despair. But into those situations, there's also this healing, this restoring, this transforming work of what God is doing through these things. Through these very situations, into this very poverty, he is growing as people, as these mighty oaks of righteousness. And you see what, 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 what this amazing work that God is doing in his people there in verse 3, what he is doing it for. It is for the display of his splendor. Or you could say the display of his righteousness, of his goodness, of his glory. That's the amazing thing, isn't it? The purpose, or one of the purposes of God's saving you and working your life is that he might display his beauty, his greatness, his splendor, his ama- how amazing he is to others. And so, so what we see that happens for, for the people back then here. Uh, it's kind of de- described in verse 4 as they go about God's business in the world. They, they go about um, as, as, as priests and ministers of God, his representatives doing what God wants them to do in the world. And, and they go off and they kind of rebuild and restore and renew Jerusalem and, and, and resettle the land. And, and it's rebuilt and renewed and God's covenant promises are back on track. And so also today, God displays his splendor and his glory and his greatness through his church, through his humble church, through the brokenness of his church where he turns it into beautiful righteousness and the transforming work of that in people's lives. And so that means Isaiah 61 is good news for everyone here today. It's not just those who aren't yet Christians. It's good news for all of us because it's not just kind of the way in uh, to, to becoming a Christian, but it's also the way forward. It's the Christian experience because we are all the same. Someone's, um, I don't know who it is, you guys might know, but has described Christians as beggars telling other beggars where to find bread. We're all beggars. We're all greatly in need. Don't you often feel spiritually poor and brokenhearted? Sometimes maybe even imprisoned, sometimes (laughs) mourning, maybe even despairing. Well, remember the promise here that God is growing us. God is growing his people from these shoots into these oaks of righteousness. And he's doing that through, not in spite of, but through our brokenness, through our weakness and our sufferings and our pain, just as much as our victory. And that's why when Jesus comes and preaches perhaps the the greatest sermon that's ever been preached, he starts by saying this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the good news to the spiritually poor. 
who are people blessed by God, grown into oats of righteousness to display his splendor in the world. Second thing that we need to see is, is who, who's about doing this? Where does this come from? And, and that's the thing. We see that in verse 1, this is from God's spirit-filled anointed one. Spirit-filled anointed one. Spirit-filled means to be kind of empowered and driven and, and in the direction of the Spirit of God. And we've seen that already in, in, in Isaiah as we've kind of gone through. It's, it, this is if you like the promised one who the book of Isaiah really centers on. The, the man through whom God will work. Before Christmas... He kept on appearing as, as the promised son, the king to lead God's people, the Messiah, whom the spirit of the Lord would be upon. In part two, since Christmas, we've seen him as the suffering servant, who again in the first servant song, we see the spirit of God rests upon. Well, here he is again, the one who is uh, under the spirit of the Lord, filled, empowered, and directed by the spirit of the sovereign Lord. Here he's also the anointed one, in the Old Testament, it's the priest and the king are the two people who are anointed in God's people. And, and being anointed, they're kind of set aside, commissioned for a particular task. Their life is all about one thing from now on amongst the people of God. And so here, this one is also set aside and set on a specific mission of transforming the unrighteous. <coughs> That's just incredible in, in verses 1 to 3, how I think how all-encompassing his work is. So he comes, uh, we see several times he proclaims this, this good message. There's a message, a gospel, good news to be shared with people. But also he comes with this powerful authority that he exercises. So he, he frees and releases people because he is the authority. There is no authority higher than him, so he can free and release. And yet also there is this compassionate love that is conveyed because he comes and he binds up and he comforts and he draws alongside so he doesn't just kind of give this message from afar and leave us to piece it together and work it out ourselves, work it out to follow. Or he doesn't just kind of come alongside in sympathy and be a good friend but have absolutely no power or ability to change anything. He's not a distant and far off authority figure with no relatability, no compassion, no understanding of our poverty and our weakness <coughs> and our vulnerability. No, his work and his ministry is all-encompassing and therefore is all-transforming. He is just what we need, just when we need it. And the picture in, in, in verse 10 of, is this, of him like getting his uniform ready to do his work. It says he will clothe, be clothed with garments of salvation, ro uh, in, in, in a, adorned in a robe of righteousness. It's like he's getting his uniform on to come and do this task. Clothing, speaking of his capacity to do it, he's able to do it, and also his commitment, his willingness to come and save. Actually, the, the imagery moves on. It's, it, it moves to kind of the, the imagery of a wedding day and, and like getting dressed up for, for the big wedding day and kind of the wedding best. Showing us this isn't just some kind of transactional, functional thing he's doing, but actually his very, his very task, his very job is to establish the most intimate of relationships with these poor and brokenhearted actually to kind of, to marry them is the picture. And in doing so, uh, we see here that he ushers in the year of the Lord's favour. That's where it comes in in verse 1, this, this year of grace and release for God's people. In, in the Old Testament, this was a year, every 50 years, they had the year of God's favour, the year of jubilee. It was a year where um, uh, debts were cancelled, slaves were freed, family property was returned. If you'd got into financial difficulties and had to sell your family property or whatever, then 
at least, at the longest, 50 years, if we return to your family, it would be a kind of economic leveler. It would ensure justice. It would, it would prevent that kind of becoming massive, uh, you know, massive po poverty and, and, and gaps and, and that kind of thing. This year of release and freedom and, 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 and hope for people. And so to this anointed one, this spirit-filled one, comes to cancel our debts. He comes to set us free. He comes to return everything to us that we've lost by our own bad choices. This is the time of God's favour that he brings. Well, who, who, who is he? Who is this man? First of all, of course, it's Isaiah. Isaiah wrote these words for God's people and, and, and for that time. And so as God's prophet, he brings the good news, the message of liberation to the people, uh, that God will establish their righteousness. He acts with the authority of God as his prophet, and, and he comes and he conveys a, a message of love and co compassion and grace. Isaiah is this one. And yet, of course, we know that he doesn't fully match everything that we see going on here. In a little sleepy backwater town of northern Israel called Nazareth in Galilee 2,000 years ago, news of this man called Jesus just started to kind of, uh, kind of just spread around all over the place. People knew Jesus. Lad in Nazareth, he had had a, a fairly ordinary upbringing with his brothers. People had known him as, as, as Joseph the carpenter's son. Perhaps there were some questions about the legitimacy of his birth or something, so may, maybe he wasn't greatly popular, but not much had happened in his life that was particularly significant. He got to 30 years old, and he just starts to teach in some of the towns and places around Galilee. And, and he just starts to create a bit of a stir, so there's just people are kind of starting to talk about him. And, and, and this, this doctor called Luke tells us what happened when one day Jesus goes to the synagogue as people are just starting to talk about, have you heard about this, what, what Jesus is saying? Goes to the synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth. And Luke says, it's, it's a wonderful little kind of reference, he says, he went in the power of the Spirit to the synagogue. Just, just kind of referencing this verse one here. Goes in the power of the Spirit to the synagogue. And, and, and Jesus goes and he takes the scroll um, in this synagogue. They had the scrolls of, the, of their scriptures. He picks up the scroll of Isaiah and opens it up to chapter 61. And he reads from verse 1. He reads this. He, read, he reads, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. He stops reading. He rolls up the scroll, gives it back to the attendant, and he sits down. And Luke says, that there's just kind of this there's, this, there's this pause, there's this anticipation. The eyes of everyone look at him. And in the synagogue, you sit down to deliver your sermon. It's just this pause. Everyone's just kind of captivated and looking at him. And he, he starts and finishes very quickly an eight-word sermon. But you wish you had them. And th this is his sermon. This is what he says. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This is the very start of, of Jesus' ministry. He's just had his baptism and, and temptation. He's just started to teach around. This is the very start. And so this is how Jesus decides to introduce his whole ministry. This is how he says, this is what I'm here for. This is who I am. This is what I'm here to do. This is what I'm about. I am the promised one in Isaiah 61. I am the spirit-empowered one. I am the one who is anointed for this task. 
And so Jesus, uh, we see as we kind of read through Luke and see, see him go on, he comes with the message of good news. The good news to the spiritually poor. He, he demonstrates over and over that he has authority to, to free and release that none can resist. No powers, no, no people can resist. And again and again he shows he has the compassion and the love and the grace to comfort and help and draw alongside the brokenhearted, the mourning, the despairing. And actually Jesus clothed himself with the garments of salvation with the robe of righteousness. He put on, if you like, his wedding best for his bride. But it wasn't, I guess, the beautiful and expensive outfit that we might expect someone to put on for their wedding day. Actually, his wedding best looked like a crown of thorns. Looked like this kind of bloody, seamless robe that he wore up to Calvary. It looked like nakedness and a beaten and torn body on a cross. That was his salvation outfit. That was where his righteousness was shown. That's where his righteousness was given to us. And that is what it took for God's spirit-filled, for God's anointed one, to be able to proclaim this good news to us, to be able to proclaim the freedom and the liberty and the grace that comes to us in Isaiah 61. That's what Jesus spoke about when he preached that sermon right at the start of his ministry in Nazareth. That's what he was talking about, that he was here to do. And it's what we, what we need, those of us who are the poor, who are the broken, who are the needy ones. If only we will recognize that as us, that is exactly what we need. And you know what, this is the work that Jesus still lives to do today. If you look back at, at verse 61, um, verse 1 and 2. Jesus, quote, stopped at to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The next line, and the day of the vengeance of our God. That, it's interesting, one thing, it's a year of favor and a day of vengeance. I think that's helpful. But also, perhaps more importantly, that, that day is coming. There is a day of vengeance coming, but Jesus didn't, that wasn't his ministry when he first came. When he first came, his ministry is one to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. There's a day when he's coming back, in vengeance to judge all people. But if you like, today we live, if you like, kind of in, in the pause between those two lines. We live in that comma where today is the day of God's favour. Today is the, day, uh, the time of grace and release and freedom and liber- liberty available to people. Today is the day where God is making righteousness spring up before all nations. Where God is establishing his people as oaks of righteousness. I think it would just be helpful as we close just take a, a moment, kind of each of us personally, to, to reflect. I wonder what, what season, if you like, of life you're in at the moment, what's kind of going on for you spiritually at the moment. And what Jesus might be doing in your life just now. Where you might be, be aware of or, or, kind of, or see your, your poverty and, and captivity and brokenness but also where into those things the good doctor of your soul might be springing up and growing in you. Righteousness, so you stand firm and resilient and strong in him. Why don't we just take a moment quietly by ourselves to reflect and pray over those things, and then the, uh, the guys can come and lead us in song in a few moments. <laughs>